tonight. If you have your Bible, open it up to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're at today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or you can also open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along there as well. If you're online with us, there should be a link in the description on YouTube or Facebook for you to be able to follow along with that YouVersion uh, uh, Bible app as well. It's got some, not only the uh, scriptures, but also some notes in there as well. First Samuel chapter 13. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's my privilege to serve you in the scriptures. I'm excited to be able to open God's word together today and see what he has for us. There was a man who was having a hard time finding a job. He was trying to, trying to find a job, had a hard time finding a job. And so he actually uh, went to the local zoo and thought, you know what, uh, while I'm trying to figure this out, I'll, I'll see if they'll let me, you know, feed the animals. I'll be, I'll be an animal feeder guy. I don't, that may have a technical, you know, term to the job description. I don't know what that is. So anyway, he goes to do that and they, they tell him, you know what, we don't actually have any availability in that job, but our gorilla recently was relocated and we don't have a new gorilla yet. Would you mind wearing this gorilla suit, you know, until we can figure this out? And, and uh, he was like, no, I'm, I'm good. They go, but we're going to pay you really, really well. So he decided, okay, well, the pay's awesome. I guess I can pretend to be a gorilla uh, for, for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, he, uh, he puts on the gorilla suit and he's going to work and whatnot. And, you know, he's just getting used to being the, being the gorilla. Well, one day he, he's, you know, swinging uh, from, from some, you know, vines or something and ends up swinging too far and he ends up in the lion cage. And uh, this is a big problem. The lion lets out a massive roar, you know, the, only, the kind that only the king of the jungle can let out. And as he lets out this roar, the, the guy is, he's trying to stay in character. He's like, oh my goodness, this lion's coming after me. It's stalking him. It's getting closer and closer and, and, and roaring. And then the lion lunges to get the guy. And just then he's like, he cries out, help, help, you know. And, and the lion says, shut up, man. You're going to get us both fired. What a dumb joke, huh? <laughs> These guys were obviously not who they seemed to be. <laughs> they were dressing up as something that they were not. They were pretending to be something that they were not. And this very much describes Saul, the first king of Israel. This is who he is. He's pretending to be something that he's not. He has all the outward appearance, but today in chapter 13, we're going to see the heart of the kind of man that Saul truly is. So here's our big idea here in 1 Samuel 13. It's this, being after God's heart is not about being perfect. It's about being repentant. That's the concept that we're going to be looking at here in 1 Samuel 13. So we're going to break it down into three parts together, piece by piece. The first piece, verses 1 through 7, the enemy's hard stance. The second one, 8 through 14, the king's hard heart. And then the third one, the people's hard spot. Let's pray. And then we'll spend some time in the scriptures today. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the chance to open it and to study it and to see what you have to say to us. And we pray that you would speak to us, God. That we wouldn't just open up uh, the pages of scripture and read old stories about old dead people and, uh, and just go about our day. But that we would do so much more. We would meet with the true and living God. And that, Lord, as we come to you, as we gather together in this place in your presence, that you would tra transform us and change us to be more like you. God, show us how we can have a heart that's after yours. Show us how we can pursue you and to become more like you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Now, our theme for 1 Samuel has been uh, after God's heart, right? That's the, the concept that we've taken as we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel. And, and the verse that has this concept in it is found here in chapter 13. Now, throughout 1 Samuel, essentially what we see is that God is seeking those who will be after his heart. And that didn't stop back in the Old Testament. God is seeking that today. That God is looking for those people, those of us who will be after his heart. And throughout the narrative for Samuel as it unfolds, there are characters who contrast one another, either having a heart after God's heart or they have a heart after their own affections. We've seen this happen a number of times in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. And now we're looking at this taking place again uh, in chapter 13, that, that there are some people who are after God's heart and some who are after their own heart. Now for Saul, up until this chapter, everything seems to be going well. That he's introduced as the first king of Israel. He has this seeming humility and says, you know what, I don't know why I would be chosen. I'm from the smallest tribe and my family's the smallest in that tribe. And I'm just, I'm not some special guy. I don't understand why I would be selected. There's seeming humility around him. And, and, and yet, what we've pointed out along the way is that there are some small little character flaws that stand out. But they only stand out if you know the rest of the story. As you're reading it, you wouldn't necessarily see it as a character flaw. You would just see it as just, you know, kind of a regular kind of guy. But as we see the story, as we, you know, as we know that the story unfolds with Saul not being uh, the, the most godly man, you can see these character flaws. Now, the previous couple of chapters, we've seen that Saul could be a man after God's heart. But chapter 13 shows us and reveals that he's really after his own things. He's just pursuing his own Affection. So let's look at this first part together, the enemy's hard stance in verses 1 through 7. Look, look there at verse 1 of chapter 13. It says this, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul, Saul, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And uh, a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard uh, of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people uh, were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So here, as we see the opening of chapter uh, 13, uh, really it comes on the heels of chapter 12. You're like, wow, thanks. I, I'm glad you can point out math. So chapter 12 closes, if you remember, with Samuel giving his farewell sermon. He, he preaches his final sermon to the people of Israel, and he transitions the authority that he's no longer leading. Now Saul is leading, and the last thing that he says to them is that uh, really, the, the, the people and their king must serve the Lord. If you don't serve the Lord, then God's going to sweep your king away. And, in, and now in chapter 13, what we see is that God unveils how Saul's appearance is not really uh, displaying his, his substance. He may look good on the outside, but there's no substance 
on the inside. So what does Saul do? The very opening chapters here, it says that he's reigned for a couple of years, and he decides to raise a, a standing army. He decides, I, I need to get an army. And so this is actually a fulfillment of chapter 8, verse 11. You remember when Samuel told the people, you don't really want a king because kings are takers. They're just going to take your stuff. They're going to take your people. They're going to take your sons. Well, here, that's what, exactly what Saul does. He takes their sons and he, he raises an army of 3,000 men uh, and uh, he selects these men and sends the rest home to sort of be like a standby militia. When, when we need you, we'll call for you, but these guys are going to be the, uh, the army. And at this time, uh, Israel uh, is basically a slave nation to the Philistines. That the people of Israel, they're, they're, you know, they, they sort of have some freedom to have their land, to be able to uh, till their ground, to, to be able to have their, their flocks or whatever. But the Philistines would often come in and they would just take whatever they wanted. You see that happen when you read through the book of Judges. And if you remember, Samuel, 1 Samuel is set in time during the times of the judges, okay? So the, the enemies of God would come in occasionally and they would just take whatever they wanted, sometimes leaving God's people completely desolate with nothing. And so the Philistines are just overlords over the nation of Israel and, uh, and Israel's a slave nation uh, to, to the Philistines. And so they, Saul starts to raise up this army and I'm sure that it's gaining the attention of the Philistines. And, and what he does is he takes 2,000 men and he says, these will be with me. And then he gives 1,000 to this man, Jonathan, who we will see later on in this chapter is actually Saul's son. It's his son, Jonathan, that he does this with. Now, he gives 1,000 men to, to Jonathan. And the first thing that we see from Jonathan in verse 3 is amazing. It says he attacks a garrison, the garrison of the Philistines, the, the, right away from the beginning. Jonathan, what we see from him beyond the, the fact that he's leading is that he's a man of action. He's my kind of dude, right? It's like, give Jonathan a thousand guys. He's not just going to sit around and say, I have a thousand men. Look how, look how nice they are. Look how many push-ups they can do. That, that's not what he's going to do. He's, he's, he's going to do something with these guys. So he goes and he attacks the garrison of the Philistines. And this attack, what it does, is it does two things. It encourages Saul to get in the fight because up until this point, all that Saul's done is get an army together. He, he hasn't done anything with the army. Jonathan's the one taking the fight to the enemy. Saul's sort of just sitting on the sidelines, not really jumping into the fight. And so it encourages Saul to get into the fight, but also it enrages the Philistines to crush Israel. Notice what it says there in verse four. It says, um, now all Israel heard that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that, see this part here, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. You see, the attack, it didn't push out the Philistines. It enraged the Philistines. It, it, it wasn't some victory that was brought that now the Philistines say, okay, we're going to leave the, the people of Israel alone. No, it enrages them and calls, the, they, calls for them to be an abomination. Here's how David Guzik says it. Now, I bet the Philistines kind of liked the Israelites as long as they were under their thumb, as, lo as long as they were oppressing them. But as soon as the Israelites stand up to face the Philistines and say, we're not taking this anymore, suddenly the Philistines don't like them anymore. If peace with the devil is more important to you than having victory in the Lord, you're always going to be defeated. And for some people, that's where their hearts are at. They would rather have peace at any cost than have real victory in the Lord. There are times when you stand for what's right and all that's going to happen is you're going to create enemies. 
That's all you're going to do. That people are going to come against you when you stand for the things that are right. But here's the thing. If you're willing to fight, God will provide the victory. That's what's being stated here. That, that, but the truth is you've got to get into the fight. You've got to be willing to jump into the fight. And up until this point, Saul hasn't been willing to do so. Jonathan is sort of going in and encouraging Saul to do such a thing. And, and, and he does so. But notice, did you, did you see what happened with, uh, with Saul? Notice it says there in verse 4 that all her, Israel heard that Saul had attacked the garrison. Is that, is that true? Did Saul, no, Saul, Saul did not attack the garrison. Jonathan was the one that attacked the garrison. Saul, you know, I, I, I don't know how it happened exactly, but it seems like his PR guy, he meets with him and says, hey, uh, Jonathan attacked, everything went well, let's take credit for this. You know, and so get, it, get the word out there that Saul attacked this garrison. You see, uh, it's, it's, it's not true. Jonathan was the one that did it, but Saul wants the recognition for Jonathan's victory. Here, here's a leadership principle within this. Good leaders give credit and take responsibility. Bad leaders just take credit. Right? So if you want to be a if you want to be a good leader, if you don't want to fall into the spot that Saul is in, then you've got to be willing to give credit to other people. But you've also got to be willing to take responsibility. And, and Saul's not willing to do either. He's not willing to take responsibility and take the fight to the enemy. He's also not willing to give credit where credit is due. And so instead, he just takes the credit. He just wants to build himself up. He just wants to make himself look good. And so the, the result is that uh, he just takes the credit for, uh, for Jonathan's victory. And, and actually, uh, it's, it's something that attacks him. It brings him down. It does not, it does not build him up. Well, what, what takes place? What happens after this? Verse 5, then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people uh, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. For Saul, uh, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling." You see, the Philistines amass their forces. They, they, they gather together. You, they're, they're not just going to go away peacefully. They're, they're now saying, what do, these, what do these Israelites think they're going to do? They're going to attack us and just think that we're going to go along with it? No, they're going to bring the fight. That the, uh, the pressure from the enemy comes even more, uh, more, more heavily against the nation of Israel. And if you notice there in verse 5, it says that they have 30,000 chariots. This means that just their chariots outnumber Saul's entire army 10 to 1, right? 10 to 1 chariots uh, for the Philistines. And that's not to mention their horsemen or their foot soldiers, which says they're that it's like the sand of the sea. It's like if you were to stand up on a hill and look over it, there'd be so many people, it's innumerable. You couldn't, even, you couldn't even count all of them. There's so many of them there. And now this show of force, what does it do? Well, it cripples Saul's entire army, right? Everyone's freaking out. They're trying to find a place to hide. They're trying to figure out how to get away. Some of them cross over the Jordan just to get away from there. And the ones that are left, they are, they're following Saul, but they're trembling in terror. They're, they're so fearful. You see, this is a very, very hard spot. 
that, that the enemy takes a hard stance against the people of God, and they're in this really difficult place. You see, God allows or brings difficulty into our lives as a way of provoking growth in our lives, as a way of, of stirring us up. And that's what God's doing in the nation of Israel right now. That, that he's, he's bringing this thing, he's allowing this enemy, this show of force, this impossible situation for them to be in so that they can, they can see growth in the Lord. And it does, he does so, God does this by showing us two things. God shows us our strengths and God shows us our weaknesses, doesn't he? When you're in the middle of a hard time like this, when you have a, a difficult situation, when you have a really hard road, when you're stuck in the middle of something that you'd rather not be in, the things that are glaring are your strengths and your weaknesses. That there are some things that God shows you that you have strength in that you maybe didn't realize or that, that it's stronger now than it was before, but you also see the places that you were weak in. And those weaknesses are not to crush you, but instead to show you where you need to trust the Lord more. That this is a place where I can actually press into the things of the Lord. Here's how James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says it. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when, you, when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. That God is actually bringing the hardship so that you can be developed, so that you can grow in, in your character. You see, here's the, here's the truth. Hard situations don't create your character. Sometimes we think that, that, you know, I'm in this hard situation and then whatever comes out comes out and I think, oh man, it just, it made that happen in me. Maybe you've had that kind of a thing happen in, in a, a time of heated fellowship with somebody, maybe, maybe a spouse or something, you know, and, and, and something comes out of you that you really didn't mean to say or whatever and, and uh, you say, but you made me do it. Uh, quick tip, they didn't make you do anything. Uh, that, that was, that was not, that's not the way that this works. You see, you don't, the hard situations don't create your character. They merely reveal your character. It's like if I was to step on a lemon, that there's a certain fragrance that's going to come out when I step on the lemon, right? That the lemon is going to produce a certain fragrance. And if I step on a skunk, a different fragrance is going to come out, right? The pressure didn't create the fragrance, does that make sense? The fragrance was already in there. The pressure revealed the fragrance that was contained within. And so too it is with us that hardships and trials don't create our character. They reveal our character. And sometimes when it reveals the things that we don't like, when I smell more like a skunk and less like a lemon, uh, when I smell that, that skunky way, that's an opportunity for me to cover it up. It's an opportunity for me to make an excuse. Or is it an opportunity for me to seek repentance? God, this is in me. I don't like this in me. I don't want this in me. Will you deal with it? Will you take care of it? Will you cleanse me and transform me? You see, when we bring our sins to God like that, when repentance, he literally transforms who we are. He changes who we are from the inside out. You see, those who grow are not the ones who just have less troubles. That's not what it is. The people who are doing well, succeeding at things, growing in life, it's not that they had less troubles. It's that the hardship shows them where they need to repent and trust God more. Saul's character is about to be revealed through this trial, through this pressure, through this hardship. And it's not 
not a good thing. So that's our second piece here. Not only the enemy's hard stance, but the king's hard heart in verses 8 through 14. Look at verse 8. It says this, when he waited, this is Saul, then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So, so Saul said, bring a burnt offering um, and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. So Saul and Samuel, they, they basically connect as all of this is transpiring and, you know, the Philistines are gathering their army and somehow they communicate and they make, a, they make an agreement. Hey, in seven days, Samuel says, I'll come and we'll, we'll offer an offering to the Lord that a sacrifice is going to be made. They agree a sacrifice needs to be made to the Lord uh, before they go into battle. And so Samuel says, I'll be there in seven days. And, and what happens? Well, verse 9, Saul decides to take things into his own hands and to make the sacrifice himself. Now, uh, while we read this, the, the, this may not come across to us like a big deal. Like we read this and they go, yeah, I mean, literally anybody could cut up an animal and burn it on, a, on an altar, right? Like that's just not a, a big deal to us. But biblically, this is actually a huge issue because the truth is that only priests can offer sacrifices, not kings. God drew very distinct lines around his leaders and he said priests are the ones who do this work. They, they, don't, do, uh, they don't do other, uh, other work. The priests are the ones who are going to offer the sacrifices. The kings are going to be the ones who lead in a different way. And, and so in a very real way, they needed to stay in their lanes. It's like, it's like if right now we were to have some sort of feedback in our sound system. You know, my voice starts feeding back and, and I stop teaching the Bible and I walk back to the back and I start pushing buttons and turning knobs and things. Brian's going to rightly say, bro, stay in your lane. Like, you walk back up there and start talking. <laughs> Let me turn the knobs. Let me figure it out, right? There are distinct, separate things that have to take place, and some people do some things, and some people do other things. Now, that's a very, that's a very low kind of a, a standard for what we're talking about today. This is a, a, a very big thing in terms of priests and kings. It's not like sound systems and, uh, and, and uh, speaking. There are very different kinds of things that are taking place here. So the priest is the only one who's allowed to make the sacrifice, not the king. So Saul is really overstepping his role here. Now, in this, the, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are three main leaders over Israel. There are prophets, there are priests, and there are kings, and we have here that Samuel is, he's holding both the office of prophet and priest, and that there is another office of king that Saul holds. Uh, and in this, these, these men uh, of the Old Testament, they try their best to do what they can to serve the Lord the, the, the way that they can, but they're imperfect. They can't perfectly fulfill this role. There's only one who could fulfill the role of being the perfect prophet, and that's Jesus. There's only one who could fulfill the role of being the perfect priest. That's Jesus. There's only one who can fill the role of being the perfect king. And that's Jesus. And while, while they're separated for us, they are united in him. That he holds the position of being the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. He's the one who speaks God's word to us perfectly as the prophet because he is the word of God. He's the one who's the perfect priest because he didn't offer an animal. He offered himself as a sacrifice to bleed and die for our sins. He's the perfect king because only he can rule the hearts of humanity and actually affect the change 
change that we need. He's the one that we need to be in the position of all of these. Not some men. It's, it, there's, no, there's no election that's going to somehow solve our problems. There's no, there's no human leader that's going to rise to power and somehow fix everything. We need Jesus to be that one. We need Jesus to fulfill that spot, that place. And so we look to him as, as such. And so Samuel uh, shows up here uh, as, as Saul is, is doing this. Saul offers the sacrifice. And look at verse 10. It says this, Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come and within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together in Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. So Samuel comes. Samuel walks into the camp just as Saul finishes the burnt offering and I'm sure the smell of smoke and uh, and the offering itself, you know, kind of like barbecue, fills the air. Saul's hands are probably still bloody from offering, offering the sacrifice, and he walks right up to Samuel, and he greets him. He walks right up to him and greets him. In verse 10, that word greet, it's not like, hey, how's it going? What's up, bro? That, that's not the greeting. The greeting that he offers is actually, it literally means to bless. So now Saul is going up to Samuel to bless Samuel, he's taking this priest thing really, really far is what's happening. He's going really far with this. It's, uh, actually, Saul should probably have been an actor, not a king. He's really good at, at acting the role. And so he's, he does, you know, he's caught essentially is what's taking place. And so, you know, because he's caught, he does what all of us do when we get caught. We act spiritual, right? We act super spiritual. They're, hey, God bless you. <laughs> you know, like, how's it going? I, I, I'm just here praying and praising the Lord. That's, that's what I'm doing. You know, uh, just, just trying to act all spiritual. Warren Wearsby says, says it like this in his uh, commentary, Be Successful. This rendezvous was the Lord's way of testing Saul's faith and patience. Without faith and patience, we can't receive what the Lord promises, Hebrews 6.12. And unbelief and impatience are marks of spiritual immaturity, James 1, 1 through 8. Until we learn to trust God and wait on his timing, we can't learn the other lessons he wants to teach us, nor can we receive the blessings he's planned for us. That there are blessings that God has planned for you, there are lessons that God wants to lead you in, and the only way to gain access to these is through faith and through patience. Without that, you're not going to get what God has for you. And Saul here, he, he wants to offer this sacrifice, but he wants to offer the sacrifice more as a means of superstitious ritual. He just kind of wants God to, he wants to offer the sacrifice so that the bad guys don't come and crush him. He's like, I just got to, I got to make this sacrifice so that I can get God on my side. Whereas Samuel is offering the sacrifice in order to be in line with the Lord and what God wants. It's a means of relationship with God. They have very different ways in which they're approaching, approaching this. And so Samuel shows up and he says, what are you doing? This isn't, this isn't a question because he has no idea what he's doing. You know, it's, it's like parents when you're talking to your toddler and you say, what are you doing? It's not because you don't know, right? You know very well what's happening within their little hearts and minds and why they're doing the crazy thing that they're doing. You're giving them an opportunity to confess and to repent, that, that's what you're doing. It's very much like in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin and they're hiding and God shows up and he says, Adam, where are you? Do you think it's because God didn't know where Adam didn't know where Adam was? 
Of course not. He knew right where Adam was. He knew exactly what was taking place. It was an opportunity for confession and repentance. And so Samuel offers this opportunity to Saul. What are you doing? And instead of confession and repentance, what do we get out of Saul? We get a lot of excuses. Instead of taking responsibility, Saul chooses to give blame. When you're caught, because you will be, right? When you're caught in sin, it's good to take responsibility. It's better to take responsibility before you're caught. But if you get to the point to where you're caught, that's the time to take responsibility, not shift blame, not make excuses. And so what does he say? Well, Saul says, you know, really, uh, it was the people's fault. I mean, the people were leaving. They were, they were losing their, their trust in me. And, and so I had to do something in order to get the people to know that we were going to do something. So really, it's the people's fault. You know, Samuel, if you would have just showed up on time, uh, then I wouldn't have had to do this. And so really, Samuel, it's your fault. You, you didn't show up in the appointed time. Doesn't he even, doesn't he even say that there? Uh, in verse 11, that you didn't come within the days appointed. Um, you know the, that if you would have just done that, then man, it would have been great. Uh, really, um, you know, the Philistines, it's their fault. They're gathering a big army and they're really scary and I don't want them to attack. And the more time that we wait, the more organized they get. And so I'm just really scared about all this. And so really, we, we just got to we got to move forward and do something. It's really, it's really their fault. And, or, you know what, at the end there, at the end of uh, verse 12, I felt compelled. It's, it was just my feelings. I just, I felt like it was the right thing to do. And, and I just was thinking, I was praying about it. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, you can go ahead and do this. And, and, and so he blamed his feelings. None of these are valid excuses. All of these are, are lame, poor excuses. He's shifting the blame to somebody else. He's not willing to take responsibility. Really, in all of this, Saul, uh, he, he failed in this by not waiting one hour. I mean, think about it. Samuel shows up as he's finishing with, with the offering. If he would have waited one hour, he waited 6.9 days, if you want to say it, say it like that. If he would have waited 0.1 more days, then he would have stayed faithful to the thing that God had, had called him to do. Isn't that how God works so many times? that we're waiting on the Lord, we're waiting for the right thing, we're waiting for God to come through, and it seems like we're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and things aren't getting better, and people are, like with Saul, people are scattering, the army is getting bigger, the enemy is threatening the attack, and it seems like there's no way out, I've got to do something. And in that moment, it's, it's not good to just do something, it's good to wait on the Lord to wait for the right time, to wait for him to come through, to wait for him to do what only he can do. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul has some really harsh words, or Samuel has some really harsh, harsh words for Saul, doesn't he? You're, you're going to lose the kingdom now. This is a, it seems like an overreaction, doesn't it? Like, man, I, I just offered a lamb. Like, why am I losing the whole kingdom over losing, over sacrificing a lamb? Well, some would say Samuel's being really judgmental. 
that, gosh, you're just taking this really, really far. far. You see, the, the issue with this is he just, he just made a mistake. He just jumped the gun. He just got ahead a little bit. Why are you going so crazy? Well, here's the truth. Saul refused to take responsibility for his sin and therefore would not repent. Refusing to call sin what it is, here's what it does. When you won't call something sinful, then you reduce it to being not that bad. I mean, it's, it's not great, but it's, it's not that bad. It's, it's not sin. Sin's, oh, sin's a mean word, isn't it? So we're going to make it not that bad. And then once it's not that bad, then it's not too far of a step to say, you know what, it's actually not bad. And then it's not too far of a step to say, it's actually good. And then it's not too far of a step to say, if you call it bad, now you're bad. Does that sound like our culture? Does it sound like the steps that our culture has taken? That's why it's such a big deal. Sin must be called what it is. And then what ends up happening is that, that, that people say, what, 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 it, what the Bible calls sinful, you're actually bad for calling it sinful because you're judging people. You ever had people say that to you? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. I want to show you something. We don't have a lot of time for this, but I just want to read this to you. All right? I, want to, I want to read what Jesus has to say about this because I think this is the thing in our culture that is just taking over so many things where people, they feel like they have this trump card, right? You say, well, that's sinful. And they go, oh, you're judgmental. And now you're like, oh no, I mean, it sort of feels judgmental. Am I, am I bad now? And I can't say that they're bad. And how does this all work? Well, Jesus actually addresses this exact issue in Matthew chapter seven, verses one through six. Jesus says this, judge not that you be not judged. You ever had that verse thrown out at you? It's the only verse some people know. (laughs) That and God helps those who help themselves, which isn't a Bible verse, right? Like those are the only two verses most people know. Judge not, lest you not, that you be not judged. Well, you know, if if you start there, then you just have that. Then you're like, man, you just can't judge. Just nobody, nobody has the right to judge. But I don't know if you noticed, in my Bible, there's more verses. Jesus says some more things. So maybe we should figure out what Jesus has to say about this. Look at what he says, continuing on. Verse 2, for with the judgment with, uh, you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Okay, so what is Jesus talking about? Right, so Jesus uses this example. He uses this analogy. He's like, when you go up to somebody and you're like, hey, you got a problem in your life, but you've got, you know, and and their problem is like a little tiny splinter that's in their eye uh, or like a, you know, they got uh, uh, an eyelash that fell in their eye and you're walking around with a telephone pole sticking out of your face. Like you, you got no right, basically is the point. Does that make sense? Like that's what Jesus is saying. So most people stop there. They just say, everyone's got telephone poles, so no one's allowed to say anything. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there are two types of judgment. One of them is condemned, and the other one he's actually commending in this section. You see, the two types of judgment are, number one, comparison. 
When I compare myself against you, Jesus says that's, that's a condemned type of judgment. Do you know why? My standard isn't you. Your standard isn't me. Do you know what your standard is? Jesus, right? So like if I compare myself against you and I say, well, I'm a little bit, bit, little bit better than you. Well, th- so what? Like, you know, the, if we were to have a jumping contest, I'm like, I can jump higher than you. Check it out. Look how awesome I am. I can jump higher than you. And you're like, no way, bro. I can jump higher than you. And, and we're, we're out jumping one another. Well, you know, no big deal, whatever. If the standard is who can jump to the moon, then we all lose. Does that make sense? Like there's no way any of us are going to get there. That's the same thing as comparing ourselves against one another when the standard's actually Jesus, okay? So comparison is what Jesus is condemning. When he says don't judge, what he's saying is stop comparing yourselves against one another. The Bible says they measured themselves by themselves and they were foolish to do so. This is not wise for us to do and it's condemned by Jesus. But there's a second type of of judgment Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 5 again. Notice what Jesus says. Hypocrite, remove the plank from your own eye. Look, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you see that? He's actually saying you should be able to help other people. There's a second kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about, and it's not comparison. It's discernment. It's discernment. When things are going well in your life because Jesus has rearranged stuff, then you can see clearly and help other people rearrange things in their lives. Does that make sense? Jesus is actually commanding us to judge discerningly, to know the difference between right and wrong, not just call everything good because someone says, I got a verse. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says, don't judge so I can live any way I want and I can live in sin. That's, that's ridiculous. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching us that there are two types of judgment and that you should do one of them. We do it all the time. We discern, we judge between right and wrong all the time. And so it's something that we need to do. Now, what's the part at the end there in verse six about pearls before swine and all that stuff? Here's the thing. Some people will refuse wisdom. They will judge you and they will attack you. They will say, you can't judge me. And then they'll judge and attack you. That's what they'll do. They'll turn this verse and they'll use it for themselves. So, so be discerning with that. It doesn't mean that you don't ever try to bring correction, that you don't ever try to, to offer the right type of discerning judgment. It just means know that some people are going to attack you. And when they do, that's when you say, okay, we can back off from this. You see, here's the big issue in, in uh, first, go back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, the big issue that, that we see here in this is that choosing present comfort at the expense of obedience, will always forfeit future blessing. You see, Samuel actually tells Saul, you would have had a place in the kingdom forever. Now, we know that David's going to be the king through which Jesus comes through. But what Samuel reveals here is that you could have had, through that friendship of Jonathan and David, you could have had someone in the, in the, the courts of the king for, the, for all of eternity. It could have been a forever type of a thing. But when you choose present comfort at the expense of obedience, it always forfeits future blessing. You see, the issue isn't about Saul's actions. It's about his heart. Isn't that what verse 14 says? The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The inference here is, Saul, you're not a man after God's heart. God wants your heart. And he wants your heart to belong to him. 
He wants your heart to be his. All right, thirdly and finally, not only the enemy's hard stance, the king's hard heart, but the people's hard spot, verses 15 through 23. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says this, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with him with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. Now, here what we see is that as, as soon as the men feared the enemy more than they feared the king, they abandoned Saul. Saul goes from 3,000 men, look that at verse 15, down to 600. And this is, everyone's running away, everyone's leaving, he's having a really, really rough day. Now, if Saul was a godly leader, he would have known that not that long ago, there was a judge named Gideon that faced the exact same situation, the same exact kind of description of the enemy outnumbering the sand of the sea was exactly what Gideon was facing. And Gideon faced it with half the men that Saul has, only 300 and so if, if he was, if Saul was a godly leader, he would have known that and, and he would have known that God would have won and so he would have led the people to fear the Lord, not to fear him. But instead, he wanted the glory. He wanted the praise. He wanted to be exalted in trying to get the men to fear him. They ended up fearing the enemy more and they leave him. They abandon him. They won't, they won't stick with him. Saul wanted them to fear him instead of the Lord. Verse 17, the raiders... Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines, three companies. There's actually a fourth one. It's in verse 23. It's at the end. But these three companies, they turned to the, uh, in, onto the road of Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road of Beth Horon. Another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each uh, man's plow, shear, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. Verse 21, And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshears and the mattocks and forks and the axes and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on, one, uh, on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. You see, the Philistines have an innumerable army. They, they sent out these, these uh, companies of raiders out, and what they do is they're cutting off all the travel routes and the supply lines. They're, they're not allowing more people to travel to support Saul. They, they've removed access to the, the technology and weaponry of the day. That they, they're not allowed to have uh, these, these uh, uh, um, this iron sharpening tools, this technology, or the weapons of it. It's essentially, what this is painting the picture of for us is that Israel has absolutely no chance. They, they are, what are they going to do? Go out there with a stick against a guy fully armored in a chariot with a horse and a, a sword and a spear? Like, who's going to win? Not the dude with the stick, right? Now, in this... Uh, God has allowed Saul and Israel to be placed in an impossible situation. And when we find ourselves in these situations, you ever, you ever been in an impossible situation? Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe there's a really difficult situation that's on the horizon. When we tend to think that if God loved me, then this hard thing would be removed or resolved. 
If God really was for me, if God really cared for me, why am I even in the situation that I'm in if God loves me? Why am I dealing with this hardship if God loved me so much? Or that if our circumstances change, then everything's just going to be, be able to come together. We, we tend to think if I just had that, that job, you know, if that, if that job comes through, then everything would be better. Or if I just got that raise, then everything would be better. Or if, if I just got that lifted truck and didn't drive a minivan anymore, then everything would be okay. <laughs> It's my confession time. Or we think, maybe if I just had that house, you know, I, my house is just, it's to this, it's to that. I need that house. Or, you know what? I live in this neighborhood. This neighborhood's not the neighborhood. I want to live in that neighborhood. If I lived in that neighborhood, then everything would be better. Oh, you know what the problem is? The problem is the state that I lived in. I live in a blue state. I need to move to a red state. I got to move to Texas because I heard they actually have freedom down there. And so I'm going to go try, try me out some of that. Uh, we think <laughs> if, uh, if I just had that relationship, you know what? I need that girlfriend. I need that boyfriend. I need to get, have that marriage. I need to have, I, you know what? We just need to have kids. And then that that will, anyone who's had kids knows that doesn't make it better, right? It just ruins a lot more stuff. They just break your things, right? Um, if I just had that experience, if I just went on that vacation, we tend to think if I just had that, then it would all be fixed, thinking that this, the circumstance is what needs to change. You see, you can get all of those things or just some of them or whatever, any or all of them, and it doesn't fix it. Why? Because the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. I don't care where you move. I don't care what house you live in. I don't care what state you move to. You're the problem. This area is not the problem. I'm my own problem. And you know who goes with me? Me. I go with me everywhere I go. And so if I don't change, then it doesn't matter if my circumstances change. If I don't change, then it doesn't matter if my station in life changes. I am the one that needs to change, and that's why God brings these impossible situations into our lives. Not because he's mean, but because he's looking to create that change within us. You see, we want to live by what we can see and eliminate faith altogether, and God simply doesn't operate this way. Faith is required. It's a necessary element to a relationship with God. Romans 14, 23 says it like this, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the, th- uh, the thing he's, uh, because the eating is not from faith. For w- uh, whatever does not, pro- I don't know what I wrote there. For whatever does not produce from faith is sin. Whatever doesn't come out of faith is sinful. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see that there? These two verses work together. If you do things without faith, it's sin. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. You see, when we find ourselves in these similar situations, what will we do? Will we be crippled by fear or will we trust in the Lord? Make, make no mistake about it, faithlessness is sinfulness. When we refuse to trust the Lord, we're, we're walking into sin. You see, this chapter ends in the middle of a narrative, and we're going to find out what happens next week with the war between Israel and the Philistines, and it's a, an epically amazing chapter next time. But the heart of the matter is this. It's a matter of the heart. We, we're all going to deal with sin as long as we're on this side of heaven. As long as we draw breath on this side of heaven, we're going to be dealing with sin. But the goal is not to become sinless. That's not our goal. Our goal is to sin less. Our goal is to grow and mature 
in the Lord. You see, the key component for us in order to sin less is to be a person who's after God's heart. But here's the key. Being after God's heart, it's not about being perfect. It's about being repentant. Isn't that the thing that Saul was missing? Saul refused responsibility. And in refusing responsibility, he refused to repent. And because he would not repent, he couldn't have right relationship with God. We're going to see in in a few chapters how David is the man who is after God's own heart. And I'll I'll give you a little spoiler. David wasn't perfect. He had some jacked up stuff in his life. How could that guy be a man after God's heart? Repentance. Repentance. Instead of making an excuse, instead of making room for sin, he chose repentance. You see, when God shows you your sin, the only right response is repentance. Repentance. The only right response is to confess it and to abandon it and turn to the Lord. Not make room and not making an excuse. So I'll, I'll leave you this. We'll close with this verse. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the choice. Will you say you have no sin? If you do so... The truth cannot be in you. But if you'll confess your sin, then God will take responsibility for your sin. If you'll take responsibility, then God will take responsibility for your sin. And he'll do two things. He will will forgive you and cleanse you. What an amazing God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to see who you are. And we pray that you would help us to have the courage to bring our sins before you. Not to cover them or to make room for them or to try to turn them into something good, but instead to freely confess our sinfulness that you might change us and transform us. That you would, that you would uh, bring that forgiveness upon us and that you would bring that cleansing our souls so desperately need. So God, do that work among us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.